Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Good evening. Welcome to Young Adults. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to be with you this evening. Hey, we are continuing in our uh, series on Colossians. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Colossians 2. If you don't, that's okay. It's going to be on the screen. You can actually open your web browser and search Colossians and read along with us, and that's one of the easiest ways to do it, or just download what's called the Bible app, and it's an easy way to follow along. Um, One of the things that as we're talking about today, uh, we're talking about how uh, some different things come up and and kind of provide a different lens for us to see through. Does anybody in here wear contacts? Any secret contacts wears? Anybody going to hide that and not show us? Okay. Any glasses wears? Okay. Yeah, I see y'all. Um, whenever I, I see y'all, see, I didn't even mean to be punny and I'm, I'm, I'm in it. All right. I'm ready. Um, I had my first, uh, eye exam when I was, uh, 11. Um, I'd never had problems with my eyes. Like nobody in my family has problems with their eyes. So I was like, I should be okay. Um, but I was going to, uh, a physical because me and my older brother, Tyler, uh, were going to play our first year of peewee football. It was a a very decorated two-year run that we each had where we played uh, peewee football. Uh, I'm sure you can read about it online. There's probably records somewhere. Um, But you had to get a physical before you could get cleared to play peewee football. So my mom took me and my brother, and we're we're getting our physicals at the same time. It's, you know, my brother's sitting next to me. She'd check his reflexes. She'd check my reflexes. She'd look in his ear. She'd look in my ear. Pretty typical. And I kind of had this sneaking suspicion, and I, I really wouldn't have, have owned up to it until then. But I was like, I don't know that I have the best vision in the world. I, I was going to own up to it. Um, but I was like, I'm not ready to be a glasses wearer. Like at the time, I was like, that's great for other people. It's not great for me. So I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So I, I, I planned it in my mind in this way. I knew that she was going to do like a minor eye test. It wasn't an optometrist, one of those people. But she did the classic, like she had the wooden spoon and she put it over, she held, gave it to my brother and said, all right, go ahead and hold it over your eye. And as I'm standing next to him, I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just see what I can do. And I'm doing one of these deals and I'm checking. I'm like, I got the E, the E's down. I got that down. Uh, the next line, like, Ah, I can do that a little bit, but it's tough. And it got to like the third, fourth, fifth lines, and I'm like, I'm going to need some help. So this, uh, this is confession time. I listened to my brother read them off, and then when I went, I just memorized what he said, and she's like, oh, your eyes look great. And I was like, well, turns out I'm a cheater and a liar, and you had no idea. Um, didn't, didn't ever go to the optometrist after that. Didn't want to be a glasses wearer. Got to uh, like college, and it was weird. I was having like a lot of headaches. Like, that happens sometimes, and uh, I kept telling uh, people, like, man, I'm just, this is weird. I, I read for college, I'm, I'm looking at a screen, and I'm, my head starts hurting right behind my eyes. It's wild, and a couple people that love me a lot said, you know, you should probably go get your eyes tested. So went to go get my eyes tested. They said, your eyes look fine. So I was like, that's great. Um, it wasn't until I came to Springfield and I met the optometrist we have now, Shout out to Dr. to Dr. Boshin. He's awesome. Um, but went to him and realized like, oh, I have an astigmatism. One of my eyes is different than the other, that I need a different prescription in one lens than the other. But uh, going to the optometrist probably has to be one of the weirdest experiences that you can do because not much in the medical field or, or, or vision is like, 
it's just kind of up to you. And I, I don't, I'm not super decisive, so I don't always know when they're like, all right, we're going to look in your eye, we're going to do these things. And then I'm convinced they're just messing. Like, they don't know. They're, they have like a video on me, and they're just like making fun of me, and they're like, all right, what's better, one or two? And I'm like, both of them are bad. I don't know. What's better, two or three? They're the same, so I don't know. What's better, three or four? I'm like, all right, at this point, I don't, I don't you can choose. I don't have an, op- an opinion here. And, but a couple years ago, they gave me my first pair of glasses. I, I am an occasional glasses wearer. Uh, I met with Dylan Lee last week, and I'm pretty sure I was wearing these glasses, and he walked by me like three times. Um, but um, what ends up happening is you see your life through the lens that you have on. Now, in glasses, that makes sense. Like if you are a glasses wearer, things are fuzzy, things are not in focus, things are not clear until you wake up and you put your contacts in or until you put your glasses in, right? As a Christian, I think sometimes there's some, some tension. We'll look at the world and we'll see things and we'll go, man, I just, I have this sense from what I read in the Bible of what life, what the world should be like. And then I see it here and it's out of focus somehow. It doesn't look right. It doesn't seem like it should be. And there's kind of this tension. And maybe that's just me. Because we want to be confident. We want to be people that see things clearly and can call a spade a spade and say, hey, that's what that is. I see it. I can own it. I can say, hey, this is what's happening there. We all want to be confident. But what ends up happening is that because of that blurriness, and we're not really sure how to decide that, how to pull it into focus, I, I end up being quiet. I end up seeing an issue in the world and going, I, I'm, I know what the Bible says about this, and I can input it, but I, I don't know if that's really what that says. And we need to be confident. We're called to be bold, but we don't know how to be confident. And what we see in the Bible is that we're called to a level of boldness. We're called to call truth, truth. We're called to call sin, sin. We're called to call other believers out. We're called in so many different ways to be a light to the people around us. But if we're not seeing things in focus and we're not seeing things clearly, you're probably going to stand on the sidelines. You're probably going to be a little bit more quiet than you should be. And I think if we know, if we knew for a fact, if we could look in our history, if we could look in the history of your life and know that your faith has a foundation then you would be able to say, yes, it's in focus. I know what my faith is. I know, I can, I can clearly state, I can be rooted in something because that's what the Bible calls us to, is to be established in our faith, to be rooted in Christ and to have true confidence. I was watching a football game and they were talking about this quarterback and they said, that quarterback is cocky. And the other guy said, well, what's the difference between cocky and confident? Because you want that in a quarterback. And he said, well, confidence is being able to talk the talk and you walk the walk. Cockies, you can just talk the talk, but you can't back it up. But God wants us to be able to say, I know, I'm rooted, I know where my foundation is. What's happening in Colossians 2, where we're at today, we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. Colossians 2, verse 1 through 8. What's happening there is that Paul's just done kind of an introduction and kind of welcoming them. But what's happened is that there's some people inside the church that are saying, hey, it's not just Jesus that you need for salvation to know God, to have the gap of your life and where God's at bridged by the person of Jesus. They're saying, well, there's actually some 
special knowledge, some mystery, some things that you, not everybody knows, but I know. And if you get close to me, then, and, and there's just kind of this weird divide and people were kind of being convinced of some things that weren't necessarily true. So if you read it with that in mind, what we read a couple weeks ago was in, I think, verse 24, or 25, when he says, hey, the mystery is Christ in you. And when he says things like mystery, and in a little bit we're going to read him say the word philosophy, he's not against mysteries, philosophies. He's just saying like, hey, what mystery is, what these people are using as this word, what philosophy is, it's Jesus. And he's kind of taking the cover off things. He's giving you that clear lens to see life through, to see the gospel through, to see the Bible through and say, this is what God is. This is how you should view things. This is how you can be firm and foundational in your faith. So we're going to read verse 1, Colossians 2, verse 1. It says this. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea. And this is, this is a, a city that's probably nine miles away. And, and the understanding there is that he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm struggling for you. And he's not just saying like, man, I'm, I'm struggling thinking about you. What he argues for later, and he uses the same term, is he's wrestling in prayer. Like, he's fighting for them on behalf of God. And he's doing it for another group, too, this, those at Laodicea, that this is a group nine miles away, that the idea was that they would have heard this word from Paul, and they would have gone and shared it to another group of people. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for, for all who have not seen me face to face. So there's going to be people that said, who's this Paul guy? And he, he's trying to write everything. He's trying to make sure the church is founded on what it should be founded on. In verse 2 he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. That Paul's hope for these two churches and really God's hope for us as a church, for us as a subset of High Street Church, for you as a member of God's church, is that you would be, that your heart would be encouraged, and that you would be knit together in love. Do you know that it's okay to be encouraged? It's okay to hear someone tell you like, man, hey, I appreciate you. Hey, I love you. Hey, I'm here for you. That when we read the Bible, it's primarily a story about Jesus. But it's okay to read it. And like the song saying, I am who you say I am. Read God's word and go, God, who is it that you say I am? And it's not just, hey, who is it that I am? Because I am all by myself a pretty messed up person. Who is it that God says that I am? That is by far the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. A.W. Tozer said that. How would you answer that question tonight? Be encouraged. Be knit together in love. That's God's hope for you. That was Paul's hope for this church. And he kind of writes in like this big run-on sentence, and he's kind of a guy who like starts a sentence and gets excited and gets to kind of the point. And we have to read it as, this part, so that, this part, so that, this part. And here's what I mean. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love, too, so that you can reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. 
He wants you to have full assurance of where you stand with God. God does not want you to walk around and have no idea where you stand with him. God doesn't want you to walk around and go, man, you know, I messed up this morning. I haven't had a chance to make things right yet. Am I out of God's good graces? Is he angry with me? No, if you're found in him, if you're following him, you can have full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Jesus is the genesis of full understanding and full knowledge. There is not this idea that that science and philosophy and all these things that exist in intellectualism. And then there's God over here. That God is the source of all wisdom, of all understanding. I love when there's a new scientific breakthrough because it's like, man, what is it? How can we break down a cell deeper and deep enough to know how God created things in such a specific way? I may not understand it yet. We may not have all the answers. But we'll get there. But he doesn't want you, as a follower of his, to have any question of where you stand with him. That's the DTR. That's the define the relationship. And that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that, that in relationships, nobody wants confusion. You, you don't know how to move forward. You don't know who you are with someone else. Am I their girlfriend? Am I just their, like, side piece? Am I like, what, what, what have I got going on here? God does not want you to have any question of where you stand with him. Full assurance in Christ. There's not anything else that will bring you assurance of where you stand with your creator. Why? Because God saw people who were broken and separated from him because of the things that they did. So he sent his son, who was fully God and fully man, to take on all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the pain because of our sin and what separated us from God. So that he would take on all of our difficulty so that we could take on all of his goodness and we could have relationship with God. That's where God stands with you. That if you have not reached out and accepted his good gift of relationship with him, I pray that you would do that tonight. Full assurance in Jesus Christ. Verse 3. In whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's the genesis of all of it. In verse 4, this is where we get to the biggest part. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He uses two, two phrases there, delude and plausible arguments. Now, if something's deluded, it means that you take something that's concentrated, that's really potent, that's high power, and you add water to it, and you water it down, you make it not as good as it should have been, right? If you pour straight up bleach on something, it's going to eat through, it's going to turn it white, it's going to take any dye, any coloring away, why? Because it's not diluted. But if you add water to it, it's palatable. There's a certain amount of bleach that you could put in drinking water that it becomes, not much, but it becomes palatable. 
I don't suggest it. It's still not going to be good for you. But that's what diluting is. It's taking something that's meant to be powerful and strong and watering it down. And Paul's hope for them is that they would not be diluted at all. That they would be at full strength and at full power. And that's where I think about where God's called us to. God's called us to be a light in our communities. God called us to share the love of Christ with the people around us. And I think that we get to plausible arguments and we go, ah, maybe. And we end up getting deluded and we go, ah, I, I would share, I would say it, but I'm not really sure. And we delude the power of God that lives in us because of the Holy Spirit. So the next phrase that he uses is, you're deluded with what? With plausible arguments. The word plausible means, I mean, it's logical, it sounds good. Sounds good, right? There's been so many times where I hear something, you you see a telemarketing thing, you see something on TV that you're like, I don't, I mean, sounds good, that infomercial. You cook a pizza in a minute, I want that, I'll buy it. It sounds good. There's plausible arguments, not just about things that you see on TV, but about your creator. There's a a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read it, you you should look at it. And in it, there is... A demon, and, and this is fully, this is, a, this is fiction, but he's saying this is, this is what probably happens. This is what could happen. There's a demon who's, who's over one person on earth, and it's these letters that this demon has to his relative. And he's saying, hey, I want this person to not get saved. I want this person to not meet Christ. This person ends up meeting Christ, and his relative writes him and says, hey, you know what your move is now, even though they've met Christ, is to make them as ineffective, lazy, deluded as you possibly can. Just because you've given your life to Christ doesn't mean that our enemy is done trying to pull you away from him. His end game is to steal, kill, and destroy. We talk about it all the time. He'll take destruction bit by bit. He'll take a death bit by bit, piece by piece. That's what deluding does. It starts to water down the power of the gospel in your life. When I, when I read this, I was like, okay, that, that's a good idea. I don't know that there's like a plausible argument that's going around our church that we need to like answer right now. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about the way that I grew up. I grew up in church. I'm very thankful for my upbringing. But one of the ways that I heard the gospel and then bent it a little bit, I heard what Jesus had for me and I bent it a little bit. It was I had the 90-10 rule and I thought like, listen, God goes 90, I go 10. Like anybody seen Hitch? Like you go 90, I go 10. That I thought like, man, God will go most of the way for you, Jared. But you probably need to fill in that last little 10%. It's not much, but God's willing to forgive pretty much everything. But if you can clean up that last little bit, and it's just, a, it's just a shift. It's a diluting of our faith. And I think it has a lot more ramification for believers. This is who he's writing to than we know of. Why? Because I walked around for years thinking, man, I'm just, I must be doing it wrong. And I was moved into being ineffective of thinking that, man, I can't share with someone. I can't figure out how to finish out my last five or 10%. So why would I go tell somebody else about Jesus when I can't figure it out? 
I was listening to a pastor preach on this, and he talked about how he had the mentality as a child of it's God plus me. It's God and me. That God would do all the work up until my salvation where I was saved. I was headed for hell, and Jesus met me. And then after that, well, God didn't take me to heaven yet, so I guess the rest of it's up to me. So I'll do everything I can. I'll be the best I can. And the analogy that he uses is, I was just doing everything I could. I was like a wrestler that was fighting, doing everything I can. And then I reached over and got the tap in from my teammate. And he came in and that's when the real fight started. But for the most part, it was kind of God, then a little bit me. And that's not true. If we take one of these arguments and we start to look at what really happens... And we can talk about it in this sense. You go, no, of course that's not true. Of course it's Jesus 100% of the way. He saves you and he's going to continue the good work that he started in you. But in practice, when it lives inside my head and I don't know how to articulate it, I don't know how to talk to anybody about it. I didn't know it was okay to ask someone, hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do I do with it? I think one of the ideas, one of the plausible arguments of our culture is that, well, this faith thing for you is good, but that's the journey you're on. And the journey I'm on is not that faith thing. So what's true for you is not true for me. And that sounds really appetizing because we're, we don't want to step on other people's toes until we try to figure out where the line is of your truth and my truth. And they're, they're going to step over each other at some point. It's just a matter of fact. Because your truth is going to bump up against someone's and someone's is going to have to give. What is a plausible argument that you could potentially be having your faith diluted in? Plausible arguments, watering down. And I think this is what ends up happening. This is why it's important. This is why understanding the lens, understanding the the glasses that you see the world through, is that you you hear about it in this context, and you're like, okay, those are some ideas, some, some worldviews that happen. Let, let me paint a scenario for you. you. You keep this worldview. It's not really changing anything for you. Everything's going fine. But then you get word from mom and dad that they're getting a divorce. You hear from grandma that grandpa just got put in the hospital because he has a disease. The person that you really looked up to failed you, hurt you. In your circumstances, your situation kind of starts to shift and change. And that foundation of what you believed and what you knew starts to shift. And it's not really what it was before. And it's important seeing and knowing the narrative of your life and knowing, okay, how do I view that? What do I do with that information? Do I panic? Do I cry? Do I call somebody? Do I, what, what do I do? How does that change what I believe and what I know? Because out of the narrative that we live in, we find our beliefs, and we find our actions, and then you start the loop again and you have situations and circumstances. We have situations and circumstances, the narrative that we see our lives through, we have our belief and we have our actions. You have that circumstance that's changing. And your worldview says, my parents have always been together. I don't know what to do now. They were the picture of faith in my life. So that must change what I believe. 
and that's going to change what I do. See, this is why our view of God is so important, so that we can take an honest look at the narrative that we live in, the narrative, the glasses that we see the world through, and go, of course people are going to fail. They're a work in progress the same way I am. I failed too. Of course people are going to get sick. No one has lasted the entirety of the earth. Every person's died. It's coming for each of us. And it's not wrong to be sad about it. But when that's the foundation that your life is built on, and that starts to crumble, everything else is going to start to change. What's the narrative in your life? What's the foundation that you believe your life is built on? Because we're not promised that everything's going to be sunshine and roses forever. I hope it is. I hope your life's going awesome right now. But that may not be forever. But even that, we need to view through the right lens. Look in verse 5. He says, For though I'm absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he kind of rounds out this idea to say like, hey, I'm, even though I'm not with you in person, I, man, I'm praying for you guys. I'm with you in spirit. It's good to hear about the good order and firmness of your faith. And in verse 6 he says, therefore, and I love the word therefore in the Bible because I always said when you read it, you go back and see what it's there for. So given what I just said, I'm going to say something else. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do we start to have what we talked about? How do we start to have a rock-solid foundation? How do we start to be established and rooted? How do we see things for what they really are? He, he reminds them of how things got started. He says, hey, just like you received him the first time, so walk in him. Just like that first time that you realized, man, I'm broken and I need help. And Jesus is the only one who will never fail me. Jesus is the only one who stepped into the mess of my life. Loved me where I was at fully. Forgave me. And is making me new every day. He says, just like you did that the very first time, walk in that. Rinse and repeat. Remember that story. We say it all the time, we do not graduate from the gospel. We don't graduate from this idea that we are broken and we need Jesus. No person has ever gotten to the point where they go, I haven't sinned in a long time. I must be perfect. Because God would just take them to heaven, I think, at that point. I don't know. It doesn't talk about that. What it talks about is that no person will ever be perfected until they're in heaven with Christ. We'll have new bodies. We'll be with him. So for the time being... 
we rinse and repeat this story. Just like you came to him the first time. And let me tell you, if you're here and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, know that what we talked about, that his hand is outstretched to you right now. You don't have to clean up your life one bit. You don't have to clean up 10%. You don't have to have a five-year plan. You could have just walked in having done the worst thing that you've ever done. And his hand is still there, ready, willing, and able to take you and forgive everything that you've done, everything that you will do, and to make you new. For those that are found in him, the old has gone away and the new has come. We're a new creation. And that's what he says, walk in it. Be reminded of it. That's why at High Street we talk about the five things. To attend a service, to join a group, to find the one, to serve, to give. Like, these are not just things that we made up that we thought would be good for our church health. These are things that we want you to do so that you're walking in him every day. This is the difference. I can believe that I need to read my Bible every day. But there's a difference in moving that to action. We all know full well that it's better to eat carrots than Cheetos. They look a lot similar. They look similar. But it takes some hearty belief to say, I believe it enough to do it. And I think we have to look at what's my circumstance What's my narrative? What do I believe? So what am I going to do about it? To walk in him every day. To wake up and be reminded of who he is, of what he did in your life, of what he's continuing to do. How are you walking with him? Verse 7, he says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is his hope for you. That you would be, listen, listen to the words that are used. That you would be rooted, established in faith, built up. Like, these are not words that say like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the sail out in the boat, let you out to sea and see where you end up. No, he, he wants you to have a foundation of faith that's not only your experience, but it's built on something of knowing his word and his way. When I was in college, I worked at a bank, and one of the things that they would tell the tellers, I've heard Pastor Eddie tell this story about someone in his family, but what they would tell the tellers is, hey, we're always looking for counterfeit money, but... The way that you know counterfeit money is not by being on top of all the latest counterfeit technology, all that. They said, no, you, you feel the real thing. And you feel the real thing enough, and you learn to count money fast, and you're doing it, and something doesn't feel right. Why? Because you've had thousands of bills run through your hand. So when something is off, you know what it looks like. You know what it feels like. This is what being rooted in him is like. To be so in tune with God's word, with the Holy Spirit, 
So that when you're walking through life, hold on, that's out of focus. It doesn't seem right. Well, I've been with the real thing so much that this is not a question anymore. You know what my favorite thing to do at the bank was? We'd come across something, hey, this doesn't feel right. You know what I would do? I'd go find my manager who's been there for 20 years and say, hey, you feel it and you tell me. We need people in our lives that we can take things to and say, hey, this doesn't feel right. You're rooted and established too. Show me what this looks like in your life. You've made that decision before. You've had that conversation before. Tell me what that looks like. Does this feel right? Does this feel the way that God intended it to you? That God does not want us to be a ship lost at sea, going somewhere we can't figure out. Established in your faith, rooted in Him. The last part's what gets me in verse 7. He says all those things. And then he says, abounding in thanksgiving. Like, we're about to be in thanksgiving time, and y'all are going to be abounding in some thanksgiving dinners. You know what I'm saying? Um, when I first, uh, like when I was in high school, my sister worked at this place where they just put in a Chick-fil-A right next to her workplace. And she was like one of the people that like planned some of their stuff. So she was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cater in Chick-fil-A, which is like, man, that's a great idea. Well, they had just opened up that week, and... Uh, they, they, the order was wrong and the order was late. And they made it right. It was awesome. It's what Chick-fil-A does, right? But they came in and they gave her one of the biggest stacks of like free chicken sandwiches I'd ever seen. And I came in and she was like, hey, there's no way I'm going to use all these before they expire. And I was like, that's a challenge to me. I'm going to use all these before they expire. I probably had like 100 free chicken sandwiches to Chick-fil-A. I was abounding in free Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Amen? It was awesome. I was not much, but I was giving those things away every once in a while. I was, every other meal, I was like, y'all want to go out to eat? I got Chick-fil-A. I'm there for Chick-fil-A. I was there. And I think they got used to like my voice through the drive-thru and like, hey, I got a free. Is this Jared? Yep. All right, pull around. Like they knew when I was coming around. Why? I was abounding in those things. What if we were characterized not by being accurate descriptors of our circumstances, but being people that are grateful for our circumstances. We, we talk about, hey, let's have an attitude of gratitude. Well, what if we had a discipline of gratitude? That when something happened, when someone rubbed you the wrong way, when a situation didn't go right, when you're standing and your world's crumbling, you said, I'm going to find two things to be thankful for. If we're rooted in Him, we're going to look at the circumstances and go, man, that's tough. But what I have to be thankful for is Jesus Christ. Because my soul, my heart was destined for hell and eternity separated from Jesus. But God found me where I was at and pulled me out of that so that I could have life together with Him. So if somebody fails me, that's all right. I'm thankful that I got that relationship in the first place. There have been things, two two things today. As I'm prepping for this, I'm getting a phone call and I'm rolling my eyes going, oh my word, I just want to get this done. Stop calling me. I just try, and I went, I'm thankful for that person. 
I'm thankful for how they've served me in the past. I'm thankful for how they've been there for me. And I went, you know what? I just need to answer the phone. What if you this week chose to have a discipline of gratitude? Chose to be abounding in gratitude. Chose to be overflowing in gratefulness. Not because your circumstance is perfect. We all know that no one's circumstance is perfect. But because of Christ in you, it's going to change your perspective. He is going to be the lens that you see things through so that you go, man, you failed me, but that's okay. I'm still thankful for you. Man, this situation is not what I thought it was, but I can be thankful for what it is. I can be thankful for my roommates. I can be thankful for my family. I can be thankful for the job that doesn't give me enough hours. I can be thankful for the program that I thought I was going to graduate from a semester ago and I'm stuck here. I'm going to choose to be thankful for it. That we have that opportunity. Because I think the danger is what we find in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And remember, he's not talking about like, Aristotle. He's talking about like the idea of taking something. It's probably a specific call to what they were calling this thing. But see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elements, elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. What are you held captive by? Are you held captive by something that's hanging on in your heart? Are you held captive by a circumstance that's going on in your life? Are you held captive by a relationship? Are you held captive by pain that's happened in the past? And he says, those things are not according to Christ. Colossians 1.20, just the chapter before, says, and, though, and through him, through Jesus, just reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. God made peace in your life so that you could have reconciliation to the God who created you. Not so that you could be held captives to lesser things, but so that our hearts would be held captive by our God who created us, who knows the amount of hairs on your head, who knows you at the deepest level. That's the person that wants to hold your heart captive. Say, God, I'm yours. Have you done that? Is that what you need to do today? is to submit yourself to being held captive by God. Would you bow your heads?